With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to A's Plus, the San Francisco Chronicles podcast on the Oakland A's and Major League Baseball. I'm your host, Chronicle A's beat writer Susan Slusser, and today we welcome in A's coach Mike Aldretti, who talks about his time in the St. Louis organization and the work he does with the A's hitters and how he shares duties with hitting coach Darren Bush. Then St. Louis Cardinals beat writer Derek Gould and I discuss all things A's and Cardinals, particularly Stephen Piscotty and the trade that brought Piscotty to Oakland and the current state of both teams. All of that next on A's Plus. Today on the A's Plus podcast, we welcome in A's assistant hitting coach, Michael Dreddy, who I think everybody in the Bay Area knows already since you're from um, our fabulous hometown of Monterey. You, of course, went through the best school in the Bay Area, Stanford. In the uh, world. In the world. Yeah, there you go. This is why I like Michael Dreddy best. Um, no, no journalistic objectivity here with Michael Dreddy. Uh, of course, you played for the Giants, you played for the A's, uh, and now you're the A's assistant hitting coach. Um, Mike, you said this is your first ever podcast. Is that? I can't imagine that's the case. Well, believe it or not, I haven't had too many requests for podcasts. So yes, this is my first one. Uh, so yeah, kind of excited about it. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll see how you do. We'll give you maybe have to give you a grade at the end. But you're a Stanford guy, so we'll I'll probably see. just I'll probably just pass you no matter what. Um, there's no you can't fail, right? Just like <laughs> when just like when we were in school. Exactly. Um, What's it like for you being back here in St. Louis? Because you were a coach here for a number of years for some really, really excellent teams. I'm sure you have some really fond memories of this place. Uh, no doubt. As a matter of fact, when we took our cab to the ballpark, I uh, kind of was looking around and taking on, taking in the whole city and remembering a number of the places and things that we did and when my family was here and uh, good memories all the way around. Uh, and like you said, it was a real good team. Uh, it was a real fun place to come to work every day. And, um, but you know, now I'm closer to home, which is actually better. Yeah, well, yeah, and you get to go home to Monterey a lot, which is nice. Mm -hmm. um, what was the, the, everybody sort of talks about the St. Louis organization, you know, and how well it's run from top to bottom and, um, you know, sort of the continuity between the different levels and the professionalism. What, what was your sort of take on, on the organization as a whole when you worked here? Well, interestingly, there was a, uh, Mo sent out a questionnaire when one year, one off season, and, uh, and asked us to explain what the, the Cardinal way was. And, uh, and I always, I always felt like it was misunderstood. I always felt like the Cardinal way was just doing things right. It wasn't. It wasn't uh, anything that they made up or, you know, came up with a uh, a pamphlet to say we're going to start doing this, which is going to be different than everybody else. I really felt like they just said, you know, we're going to do it right. We're going to we're going to play hard. We're going to play the way you're supposed to. Uh, guys, we're going to be playing the game right. And so I felt like that that in and of itself was the Cardinal way, which I really like, because I, uh, I, you know, I'm kind of old school, and I, and I think there's a way to play this game, and I think there's a way to approach it. And uh, so from that standpoint, I really enjoyed it. 
You, when you were here, you were working a lot with uh, another former A's player, uh, Mark McGuire. What was that like working with Mark? Interestingly, you would think that Mark McGuire and I would have completely different ideas and on uh, on hitting, but that was not the case. And uh, we talked long and hard about what we wanted to teach, what we thought was important, and uh, it was all right in line with each other. You now are assistant hitting coach with the A's. Um, Darren Bush is the hitting coach. How how does that work? Are you? in charge of some guys? Do you have different specific duties? How, how do you guys kind of split things up as with the hit, hitting coach duties? Well, as the first hitting coach ever uh, in St. Louis, I realized that that relationship between the hitting coach and the assistant hitting coach has got to be a good one. If not, you know, you've got an assistant hitting coach who's trying to take the other guy's job and the other guy worried about his job and trying to keep it. Uh, what works really well with Bushy and I is that uh, A, he's a really good hitting coach. B, I'm not trying to get his job. Uh, and what I also thought was really important or one of the things that I do is I make sure that everybody all the way down to each and every player, you guys in the media, that uh, Darren Bush is the hitting coach. It's it's not, you know, I've, I've been doing this for a long time, and so I'm kind of the hitting coach in the background. That's not the case. Uh, and I'm and I'm fine with it, A, because he's really good, and B, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with, with, the, with the title, with the role, and um, I think that's how come it works. Yeah. So do you kind of just jump in when asked? Do you, like, take certain times in the cage? Are you responsible for certain groups? No, I think uh, there are certain guys that, as as you get going, you uh, you gravitate to, and they or they gravitate to you. Um, and and the other you know the other good thing too is that from uh, from Bushy's standpoint, he doesn't have a jealous bone in his body. I don't have a jealous bone in my body. If somebody wants to work with him or somebody wants to work with me, that's fine. And uh, but for the most part, we talk about each and every guy throughout the course of every day. So um, one thing that's really important is the message that I'm giving the players is the same message he's given and vice versa. And um, I think that's really important because you know what ends up happening a lot of times in these situations is one guy has his philosophy, the other guy has another, and you end up splitting the team up and, and then, then it just turns into a competition. Uh, thank goodness we don't have that here. What goes into being a hitting coach? Is it is it a much, as much mental, like sort of therapist, as it is, um, you know, working on guys the way guys set up and their stance and the swing, or is it more mechanical or blend? I, it's it's kind of a blend, and I think I think uh, it's evolving. I think I think in the old days it was it was very much psychological. Uh, I've always felt, and I still to this day feel like, you know, everybody's best chance. And my job as a hitting coach is to make sure that that guy walks out of every every cage session that we have feeling like a bad man. And uh, I think that just gives you your best chance because I know for a fact, because I went through it, when I thought I was no good, I was right. And when I felt like I was pretty good, at least I had a chance. It didn't guarantee me anything, but at least that was my best chance. Uh, so that's how it's been for a long, long time. And I think it's kind of evolving. These, these kids these days, they're very into the mechanics. They're very into the analytics. They really wanna make sure that they, that they do everything mechanically correct. They've got the video that they can break down. They've got everything under the sun that you can analyze every bit of your swing. So that being said, we have to be a little bit more analytical. We have to be a little bit more um, 
visual with reg with regards to the to the videos and um, so from that standpoint I'm learning because uh, I'm still old school but um, but it is a combination uh, it's now the age of the home run and obviously everybody's hitting like crazy your team is no exception is that fun as a hitting coach to see guys you know hitting, hitting balls out of the park at the pace they are or do you want to make sure that guys kind of maintain sort of a well-rounded approach at the plate I, I really do believe, even though we do hit a lot of homers, uh, you know, between Bushy and I, it's it's a it's a result of Bushy and I, in my opinion, talking about being a good hitter, getting yourself in a good position, um, making a good first move to the ball, and I think when you do those things, and that goes all the way back to you know the beginning of time, if you're in a good position to hit. You pick a good pitch and you put a good swing on it. Uh, good things will happen. You know, fortunately uh, for these guys, they're a little bit bigger and a little bit stronger, and uh, definitely better trained than some of us older guys. Uh, and you know, when you're bigger and stronger, the ball goes a little farther. But uh, I think that I would say, from Bushy's standpoint and mine, the uh, the real important thing is to make them good hitters I think I think that uh, we have a little we have a little uh, saying with us when you when you come and work with the A's we're gonna work on hitting and becoming a really good hitter as opposed to just working on a swing and um, you know there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff out there that that um, people are people are uh, spitting out that says all you have to do is use this swing every single pitch and uh, and I, I disagree with it. I think at some point you got to know how to hit. Right. And that's what I feel that we're, uh, we're promoting here in Oakland. And uh, good, good swings and good approaches turn into, you know, well-struck baseballs and well-struck baseballs go out of the park. Now, this is the time of year where occasionally you're working with some pitchers since you've got some interleague series, including this one. Is that, is that fun or do you grit your teeth a little bit? No, it's I, matter of fact, all the way back to when I was with St. Louis, I, uh, I like, I don't like to just, um, just know who the hitters are. Uh, I mean, we've got a we've got a, a team and a clubhouse full of pitchers and hitters. Uh, so I, you know, I take hold of that and uh, I, I relish the time that I get to spend with pitchers. You know, we get to talk about hitting. Uh, I can give them a hitter's standpoint, which hopefully helps them sometimes when they're on the mound. But uh, but in general, yeah, I I do like that. I know there's only so much we can do, especially in the American League. Um, we get them for like a week here and a week there, right, right before we're getting ready to do interleague. But uh, in the National League, it was it was every day and uh, really made good friendships with um, Adam Wainwright, Chris Carpenter, um, Jake Westbrook, Lance Lynn. Those guys, I had them every day, and uh, you know we had we had a good time with it. And I think you know some of those guys ended up being decent hitters. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you also work with the team's outfielders. I've got to think that with this group in particular, that's a load of fun. Well, I I basically do all the outfield stuff in spring training. Right. Once spring training's over, turn it over to I turn it over to Ryan. And uh, but I do one thing. I one thing I did like, you know, when I when I moved over to first base coach, I like coaching. I like coaching guys. I like coaching tech and I like seeing guys get better um, so when I was first base coach I did do that with the with the, uh, with the outfielders and like you said it was fun I was coaching again I wasn't you know typing all day but uh, one of the things that I one of the things that I you know reasons why I got into this is because I like I like coaching I like the interaction with the uh, younger guys 
and I uh, and I really and I really enjoy it. So from that standpoint, the uh, the outfield thing, I still get my little my little time in in spring training. But once the season starts, it's uh, it's Rhino's gig. And uh, but he and I talk about it, and, uh, and he's real good about it also. Uh, Mickey Morabito um, mentioned to me that you also have an extra job. Um, you are, he said you're the assistant travel secretary. Explain to us about that. Well, a lot of hats I've been wearing. You know, <laughs> I've done a little. I've done a little first base coach. I've done a little bench coach. I've, I've done some outfield. Done some base running, and they've added another. You know. <laughs> It's it's kind of tongue in cheek. Uh, every night the, that there's uh, there's two buses that leave the ballpark that go back to the hotel, and uh, he puts me in charge of the second bus, which normally has about seven or eight guys on it. And uh, I've convinced him that I'm doing a wonderful job, and that it's a real, real important job. So uh, from that standpoint, yeah, just another hat that I've got. Yeah, well, um, you haven't left anybody behind yet, right? Or have you? I thought I did one time, <laughs> but. Uh, Stephen Piscotti actually, and I actually called him. Uh, he was he actually was uh, walking back with Randall Gritchick when we were in uh, Toronto. So I didn't leave him, but uh, but only because he because he had somewhere else to go. Okay, Nerv a nervous second though. Oh no, there I've was lost, definitely I've lost Stephen Piscotti. <laughs> <laughs> and then Mickey was going to be all over me for oh. not not handling my job correctly. Yeah, you probably but. would have lost your job at that point. Now your nephew Carter Aldrini mm -hmm. was uh, drafted uh, in the in the recent June draft. Uh, what can you tell us about? Carter and uh, obviously your, his his dad is your brother Rich Aldretti and I'm sure you've known Carter his entire life. His entire life and uh, I'm really impressed. I've been really impressed with him through the years, um, how he's grown, how he's matured. I do know that he's, he's had baseball in his blood since the day he was born. My brother uh, has had a baseball academy that he's gone to probably since he was like four. Uh, so he's it, the baseball's in his blood, but I've, you know, I've also watched him grow up. I've watched him mature. I watch him work. Uh, he and my brother have done, you know, hours and hours and hours uh, getting him ready to, to get off to college and then hopefully have a successful uh, professional career. And I've, I've jumped in, uh, you know, in the off season. So I've had, a, I've had numerous uh, sessions with Carter, uh, but I won't, I won't take any of the credit. You know, it's, it's pretty much he and his dad and they're, they've done a lot of work and, um, and, I've, and I'm impressed with him as a young man too. So, uh, so I like to hear that. And you were telling me it kind of continues the the family connection with the Giants. Sorry, A's fans, but he's he was drafted by the Giants. But yeah, it's kind of obviously you, as as you were. And and so was my brother. So the three of us were all drafted by the Giants and have played in the minors for him. Uh, and hopefully, you know, hopefully Carter makes it to the big leagues and we can have another another uh, little uh, uniform on the wall with a Giants Giants logo and uh, our name on the back. Fun stuff. Thanks for joining us today on Ace Plus, Michael Dreddy. My pleasure. Thank you, Susan. Our thanks again to Mike Aldretti for joining us on A's Plus. We will be right back with Derek Gould. Welcome back to A's Plus podcast. Uh, we have today Derek Gould, the wonderful Cardinals baseball writer for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch and a former BBWAA president and a very good friend. Uh, kind of a strange season so far, Derek, for, for the Cardinals. Uh, they're a little bit in the same position as the A's. Inconsistent, kind of high expectations, and not really able to get on track. What's been going on with them so far? 
a lot of things that a team relies on to be the reason why it contends has not been there for the Cardinals. That means starting with their offense, the very beginning, um, you know, lead off number two, three, the guys who jumpstart the offense just haven't been there consistently. When they are, they go on gangbuster runs of offense, but when they're not, then they kind of hunt and pack and they rely on things like base running, which has been very good, or rely on defense, which has been really good, or they rely on situational hitting, which hasn't been very good, as you saw um, in the first game against the A's. Um, and then there's the starting pitching. Um, starting pitching has been short, um, has not been consistent, and has been um, from pitchers who cannot do this have been giving up leads, which again you saw against you know with the Cardinals against Oakland and Jack Flaherty. So these two things that are supposed to be hallmark of contenders, especially hallmarks of the Cardinals. Um, have not been there and they've been playing uphill as a result they either have to catch up because of the runs the pitcher has gotten or they haven't been able to add on and then the starting pitching fails so that's where they're at um you know and thank you very much for the compliments there it's nice to have you here in town in st louis so that people can uh, see why i talk so much about your coverage of the a's and why we try to you know we try to learn here from the best coverage so that we can continue to bring really good coverage so it's nice to have you here so i can point to the person and say well that's what we're trying to do too well that's very kind of you and that's why this is going to be kind of fun because we're doing a, a this is really a joint podcast we're going to fire questions at each other which i think will, will work out really well but when you talk about the cardinals offense um baseball fans in the bay area have obviously seen tons of paul goldschmidt over the mm -hmm. years what is going on with him what, what have you seen from him so for the most part it comes down to this um three things one he's seen more breaking balls more off-speed pitches than he ever has and uh, as matt carpenter was just telling me in the clubhouse he goes who isn't um you know baseball is seeing fewer fastballs and you know more breaking balls and faster faster fastballs um fastest fastballs if we've seen those yet um, you know, those kind of things are happening to him. So more breaking ball. For the, for the first time in his career, he could see um, more than half of the pitches will be off-speed pitches Ooh. this year, which is something. I mean, that's, that's something. He, a lot more ground balls from him. Um, and then the other part, which has really been um, something that was true early on, then, then got better, and now maybe he feels this way, is he's always behind in the count. He, he's... Uh, um, you know, I've been trying to think of a way to describe it, and I haven't quite figured out a way to describe it in print, um, but I get asked the question a lot. So I, there are times where he just feels like a defensive hitter as opposed to an offensive hitter. You know, he's just he's upside down in counts, so he doesn't control them, so he has to expand, then he gets the ground ball. One of the reasons why he's upside down in counts is because he's not seeing a lot of fastballs. I mean, it's just all these things. And so um, you know, I don't know if that's an approach that's working against him, an adjustment that's working against him, or, you know, just the – the, the league has just found a way to quiet the Cardinals' best hitters in so many ways, and how they get out of it will be fascinating, and whether or not they have time to get out of it, I mean, that's just part of it, but um, Goldschmidt, just those three things, I mean, it's more off-speed pitches than ever before, a lot of ground ball rates, those are probably related, and it feels like, um, and the numbers bear this out, that he's just hitting with two strikes more often than not, hitting in, in defensive counts so often. My take with the Cardinals over the years has always been don't count them out because they always seem to find a way to kind of work their way back, at least, very least, into contention mm -hmm. uh, into September. So they're they're a fascinating uh, organization. Um, and with Goldschmidt, I, a little bit similar to what the A's see a lot with new players. Um, they saw with Stephen Piscotty last year. Um, slow starts sometimes when you've been with one organization for a really long time and you go somewhere else. It's it's hard to get going with a new team. We saw that with Piscotty. Mm -hmm. um, 
really the whole Piscotti thing between the A's and the Cardinals has been one of the really, you know, with a, of course, the horrible fact that his mom was dying and, yeah. and has since passed from ALS. Um, but it was a, a very nice sort of um, thing that the teams did to get Stephen Piscotti back to home to the Bay Area to be with his mom, Gretchen, as she was ailing from ALS. What was it like covering all of that from here? Oh, yeah. And I'd like to hear what it was like covering it from your end, too. Um, you know, going into that winter meetings, the Cardinals had their eye. Well, it wasn't a secret. The Cardinals had their eye on um, getting an an outfielder from the Marlins. This was like their sole goal. They had, I, I once was talking to one of the guys with the Cardinals and I said, you just move down to Miami and you <laughs> camp outside Jeter's office because they had so many things to talk to the Marlins about. They wanted to get, they wanted to trade for Yelich. I, I mean, we can all, we can relitigate this. Makes Everybody sense. in St. Louis wants to. The Cardinals wanted to trade for Yelich. If they had their choice, they would have traded for Yelich. Um, they said, no, you know, the Marlins said, we, we're going to move Stanton first. Um, Cardinals ownership was like, well, cool, we'll try to get Stanton. Um, then that went. And, you know, in the Bay Area, obviously, the Giants and the Cardinals both had deals on the table, both approved, everything was ready to go, and Stanton said no. Stanton used his leverage. He played the game. He heard both sides out. That's fine. But he probably was never going to go to either of those right. places. He was just gaining leverage, which is fine. Then, and and again, this involves the Bay Area, then you had Azuna. Um, the Cardinals call up. I mean, literally, the moment they like, hey, the Marlins are on line one. Stanton said no. Okay, can we talk to you about Yelich? Can we talk to you about another one of the outfielders? And I'm sure it was probably the same with the Giants, right? Because the Cardinals felt like their their contender for the next available outfielder was Azuna. And I, I know he asked about Piscotty, but this is all building right, kind of a case. Yeah. Um, you know, so uh, Cardinals felt like, okay, well, if they're going to make Azuna available, and they may not make Yelich available because Yelich had been told, his, his agent had been told they weren't going to trade him really. Um, and they were of the assumption they weren't going to be traded. The Cardinals felt, well, we either go for Azuna or we could be left in the cold. We can't be left in the cold. And the Giants had the same sense, right? If right. they wanted an outfielder, you saw eventually they went and got McCutcheon. Right. Um, so, you know, if they wanted an outfielder, it was Azuna or bust at this point in time. Cardinals were able to work out the deal for Azuna. All along this time, it had been kind of in the back of their minds that if they – acquired a corner outfielder that they would try to move Piscotti to the Bay Area. They were not, um, they, they were very much aware of the Giants' interest in a corner outfielder. Um, and, you know, they had been made aware of Oakland. I think going back to July, right. Oakland had first approached them about Piscotti. Right. And, and Oakland I, had called on Azuna too. And he oh, said he really? didn't want to go to Oakland. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember <laughs> that. That's right. Um, but I don't know. Do you was Oakland's interest in Piscotty bringing him home, or was it uh, because they saw an undervalued outfielder that maybe they can move on at a low cost? I think it was a combination, but it, it was certainly the latter. You know, for the A's, like, oh, he's having a down, little bit of a down year. Maybe we can get him for a little less. Yeah, Stanford hitter who hits yeah. a lot of doubles, who fits in their lineup. Would, yeah, I mean, that's what always got me was like they may, and and the Cardinals would be aware of that. And, you know, the A's call, they're like, oh. Wait. What undervalued asset are we going to try? <laughs> are they going to try to get? Um, but, you know, and Kantrovitz would have yeah. known Piscotti um, clearly. And so that would have helped. But the Cardinals thought they can do the right thing here. Um, they had signed less than, what, nine, eight, nine months earlier. They had just signed Piscotti to a six-year deal. This was like a mutual commitment. Um you know, Cardinals given many years, more years than they had to anybody else at that point in time, 
And then Piscotti, I mean, you look at that deal, he's never going to make more than seven and a half million in the guaranteed life of it. Um, so both sides gave a lot to make that happen. Uh, that was a really emotional press conference. Um, it came during the opening series and everything. So there there was this connection there between it was the largest. You'll appreciate this. I was st- shocked by this largest contract given a Stanford hitter at that point in time. My goodness. Isn't that amazing? That really is. Negotiated by a Stanford guy for a Stanford guy. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was caught off guard by that. Like, That's... wait, uh, but most guaranteed money for a Stanford hitter given wow. all the stuff people say about the Stanford hitters in the draft and, yeah. you know, how hard it is for them to sometimes connect. But there was. Um, so the Cardinals had always kept that in mind. When they get the deal done for Azuna, they already had plates spinning to get Piscotty out. And, you know, they Piscotty was aware um, that it might be possible. He, um, I don't know how much of it he was aware of. I, I don't know how much of it he was aware of and how much of it he was trying to not be aware of, if right. that makes sense, right. to get hopes up. Um, and they did that and they called him. And it was uh, the day the Cardinals did that was the same day that they acquired Azuna. And we... It's the winter meeting, so you know how this is set up, but but listeners may not, is that, you know, um, the last day of winter meetings, everybody flees after the Rule 5 draft. Um, the Cardinals suggested that we don't run, that we don't race to a flight. Um, they said, you know... It would have been nice if the A's had done the same, but oh well. Yeah. <laughs> well, we had... Yeah. I mean, but they... We knew what was up with Azuna. Right. I mean, we'd all written that. Right. Um, and we knew that they were going to try. Actually, you and I had talked we, about Piscata. We, yeah. we, we had a good reported. idea that the Piscata yeah. thing was happening. And the Cardinals point was that they're not going to do something in St. Louis um, to talk to us. So right. just stay. Right. Um, and that day we were marched in and out of the suite three times. Wow. Um, because this physical was passed. Okay, we're going to comment on this. And now we're going to go get a plane. And then we'll be walking out and they'd be like, wait, wait, nope, we're not going to get that plane. <laughs> And I mean, it got to a point where like, can we just talk on the plane? Like, because we all would like to get home tonight. Can, we're all taking the same flight. My, like, it was it was it was bare bones at that point. It was like two reporters and three members of the front office there in in Orlando or Lake Buena Vista, and uh, we were all changing our same flights oh, later and later to uh, to accommodate. And um, but the the reason why I bring that up is because everything was segmented, so it wasn't a comment on Azuna. Um, and Piscotti all at once. It was in stages. And right. the time when we walked in there, knowing that the Piscotti deal had been done, um, that that was a room of people who all understood that this was not the usual trade. Exactly. And that, you know, Moe's, you know, poise, John Mosaic, the president of baseball operations, you know, the way he presented it to us, the way he kind of explained, like, look, you know, from a baseball point of view, let's not look at this. And uh, um, we all knew Stephen very well. Um, it was hard not to just be a human in that moment and not be a content provider, exactly. a tweeter, a blog writer, and just go, like, they, they did something right here. Yep. Yeah, and how often does that happen that two organizations make something happen for um, a family reason, yeah. you know, for um, a, something that affects somebody off the field. And Stephen is was so thankful at the time. He's still so thankful. The family who, you, as you know, is just wonderful, wonderful family um, that they've been so grateful. And um, Stephen called it bittersweet. 
at yeah. the time. You know, he he, lo- he came up, he came up through the system. He knows everybody here. He grew up here uh, in St. Louis. He still got you know so many fond memories here. Mm-hmm. He considers it. He said still considers it a little bit home. And of course, you know, going home because your mom is dying. That's you know, it, it's a terrible reason to have to go. But yeah. to to be able to be there, he lived at home. He actually was living in his childhood home mm-hmm. the entire time um, while his mom was suffering from ALS and he was helping, you know, it wasn't, yeah, that's what he was telling yeah, us. Yeah. It wasn't as if, um, you know, he was just kind of like stopping by and saying hi and hanging out with her a little bit. You know, he was helping move her into the van he was driving them. They had a custom, a van customized that she could get in and out of. And he was driving her around. He was driving her to the hairdresser and to therapy and doctor's appointments and stuff like that. That's and yeah. And, uh, it's a you know, as somebody, um, their health declines from ALS. It gets very severe, very difficult. Um, the part of it that isn't probably talked about that much, um, in part because we don't tend to talk about these things, is the contract played a part in this because no. Piscotti had wealth that he had not had before, right. that he was not guaranteed, and that allowed for him to do some things for the treatment of his mother yeah. that maybe he wouldn't have otherwise been able to do had he not agreed to that long-term deal. Right. And it certainly helped getting the deal done because of cost control for the A's. That's so yeah. important for an organization that, you know, tends to do things carefully when it comes to money. So uh, it, it all it all kind of worked together. But um, So what brought out the best in him? Like, I mean, he had a career year last yeah. year with all of this going on in the background. Yeah. And I mean, his days had to be long and emotional. And I mean, we both know the, the work, like you mentioned, that he put in when he was away from the ballpark. So yeah. what do you think kind of was it? comfort of being at the ballpark? Was it his fit on the team? I think some of it was being back home, you know, and he grew up an A's fan. He mm-hmm. knows the Coliseum well. Um, you know, he knew a few f- people with the organization um, already pretty well, but uh, he didn't, he got off to a terrible start, which is understandable. You know, mm-hmm. he is living in a, in a very difficult situation. And um, his mom died in early May and, uh, you know, he took a few days and he came back and uh, Stephen Piscotti has um, provided some of the most um, poignant, touching moments in A's history in just such a short really? time because he came back after his mom's service and he hit a home run, his first at bat at Fenway Park after coming back from his mom's service. And as he crossed home plate, he held his hands up toward the heavens and he looked up. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a photographer. There's a, I posted the photo numerous times and I tweeted it. A photographer caught the moment. And he also caught the light kind of shining just like right over Stephen's oh, head. Wow. And it's really, it looks almost like a sort of a holy image. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's amazing. It's gripping. Uh, and he said after after the game, you know, we were all kind of tearing up. And he was tearing up. And he said, I know she was there with me. And yeah. I'm going to get a little choked up just even talking about it. And that was amazing. But uh, the first game in St. Louis here with the ovation that he got from the St. Louis fans, who I have to say I've been so impressed with them from the day of the trade um, through last night, they have continued to express support for Piscotti and his family. They said, I've heard, heard from so many people who said, he'll, you know, we'll always root for him. We will always wish the best for him. People have continued to follow him. Um, and I think they really took him into their hearts. And we saw that last night. And that was another mm-hmm. one where I kind of got a little bit choked up. And you could tell that he did too. So um, everybody's response to something that was just such a, the most horrific thing a family could go through. Everybody else's response has been wonderful. It's really heartwarming. Yeah. I mean, I've had four days of this here with with the angels coming in (laughs) with Albert's return for the first time. And then Piscotti's turn. I mean, it's, it has been a uh, 
remarkable stretch. As we're talking here um, today, the Stanley Cup is here, so you extend it out. I mean, St. Louis has uh, has had its wish fulfilled with a Stanley <laughs> Cup coming to town and the Blues winning. Um, but the Blues, not only did they win the Stanley Cup, but they did it in the most like dramatic way possible where their last place. I mean, our paper had a story about the likely number one overall pick because they're like, well, this is where the Blues are. And on the day of the draft, the Blues are holding the cup and they're like, well, we don't know who we're picking. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's interesting, like all the just the emotional twist that this town has gone through and then um, what they did for Piscotti and what they do for players coming back and what they did for Albert, yeah. um, Albert Pujols and his return. This has been a remarkable stretch here at the ballpark um, that the fans have been a part of and deserve a lot of credit for creating an atmosphere um, that speaks to and will echo for a long time about baseball's place, um, sports place yeah. with hockey, but baseball's place in the identity um, of this town. Yeah, it's a very positive vibe. And I, you know what, I, I'm glad you mentioned the Stanley Cup because um, as, you, as you know, I'm a hockey, yes. also a part-time hockey writer and I love hockey. Um, the Blues, um, because I covered some of uh, the eats of the Sharks playoff series. And I, when the Sharks got the Blues, the uh, feeling around Northern California was pretty much like, well, the, the Sharks will be back in the Stanley Cup now because the, the Blues did not look like the most impressive competition mm -hmm. that they had faced. They had a tough series against Vegas, um, you know, Avalanche. And, um, really, I, I thought that the Vegas was probably the toughest team that they'd faced. And, yeah. and I think that everybody thought the Blues would kind of just be a pushover here. And no, they, they imp really impressed me. And I, I mean, oh my gosh, I think for that to happen with this such a great sports town mm -hmm. and out of nowhere, 52 years in the making. Too. Wow. Yeah. yeah. What, so what was it like in St. Louis as that's happening? I have no idea because I was on, on the, the road, road with the were. Cardinals. <laughs> um, I was uh, I was at Foley's in New York during Game 7 awesome. um, watching the game with uh, Blues fans there in New York. And then I was um, watching the the adorable Mets. They're just so adorable. I I find them just <laughs> the very Mets. cute. Yes. Um, Are just, they a major league team? I don't, I don't <laughs> I don't know. Familiar. I, I I don't know. Um, some of the actions here recently have been juvenile. Um, but I saw the Cardinals and the Mets there while everybody else was having a parade back here, which I'll be honest leaves me. And I've been thinking about this leaves me without two of the most important questions that will be asked of St. Louis people is one. They all say, where did you go to high school? I don't have an answer because I'm not from around here. So if I say where I went to high school, everybody gives me like a blank stare like they can't do anything and then the other one now is where were you in the parade routes oh, yeah. i'd be like uh city field and yeah. then, uh, oh, so now I'm, I'm 0 for 2 in in the town you where i live no home st louis cred i have no st louis cred <laughs> that's sad. except I for to... i can say i cover the blues as a beat now that's now oh, that's that, yeah that, oh that's pretty good yeah, i was gonna go years. look for somebody else to substitute with on the podcast because oh, i need yeah. more i think i need more I deserve, st louis cred. you do need more st louis cred i did eat toasted ravioli recently oh so, i have not for a long time but yeah so that's all right. Um, it, it's, uh, I mean, I, you know, people, uh, people would call the Blues the Cubs of the hockey, uh, of the NHL. Um, but there was a difference, though. There's a real difference, a significant difference. Um, when I covered the Blues, they were toward the end of a run of consecutive playoffs, unlike you can have in baseball, candidly. Uh, and unlike you can really have in any other sport, maybe save the NBA, but you don't see that anymore because of, um, you know, tanking essentially. Um, they were, I figured it out once that like there was a kid born 
who would be a, in his residency in med school and had never seen the Blues out of the playoffs. Just yeah. to give you a sense of the scope of years consecutive of them being in the playoffs. And yet they hadn't been in the Stanley I mean, Cup. I think my Red Wings passed it, but that's okay. No, 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 you're right. They did. But, <laughs> but like, just, but they got to the Stanley Cup finals. The Red Wings right. did. The Blues never got to a final. Like, it was 27, 28 consecutive years, never in the Stanley Cup final, um, which is just like hard to process that, like, that couldn't happen into one. But, the, you know, that's how ho difficult hockey's postseason is. And so it's not really the Cubs because the Cubs just weren't there. Right. Um, it's closer to the Red Sox, you know, because the Red Sox had gotten there and were denied because of goofiness or because of better teams or things like that. But even that's not quite right because the Red Sox had bad years. The Blues were good constantly. The Blues were like they would they would press through and they were contenders and they won President's Great Trophy. Players. They had Hall of Fame players. They had a you know a defense that was loaded with Norris trophies. Um, you know, they could carry out uh, they could carry out very impressive trophies to the ice and never really the biggest one of them all. And I think that puts such weight on, oh, wait, this is the team that's going to bring it is the one that doesn't have the great player, doesn't have the Hall of Fame, the one that was in last place. Fired it's their just coach. perfect. Yeah, yeah, fired their coach. Um, so that there that that added to the emotion. Of it. Oh, my gosh, that's all crazy. Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of fun to be here on a night that the Stanley Cup is also yeah, here. Yeah. Yes, because we have not seen the Stanley Cup in the Bay Area either. So, Can we? Can I ask you some ace questions? Sure, let's okay. go. All right, so uh, Chapman, does he play third base or left field? That's so funny because the commissioner, uh, Rick Hummel, was asking me the same thing. He's like, I've never seen a, you know, especially with a runner at first, I've never seen a, a third mm -hmm. baseman so far back. But, yeah, he's quick and he's got that strong arm. It's incredible. We were Rick and I were talking about it, like, that. you know, at one point in time, they, the A's did not have a shift on, and three of their infielders were in the grass yep. to start the pitch. Um, increases. I mean, Chapman is incredible. Chapman is like the next great all-around player from my perspective. I mean, obviously he gets the comparisons to Nolan Arenado and deserves them. Um, you know, but I was really struck by that. And then he still is able to come in and play the bunt. Um, what 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 do you think? Where do the A's fit in the galaxy of the American League, um, especially given that they're in the division with um, a juggernaut? I mean, there's no Houston's a juggernaut. Well, I think the, you know it's interesting because you would think that the A's would be an organization in an era of tanking where they might think about doing that now and then because they do tend to contend and then kind of build up and tear down as, as they have throughout history, including going back to the Philadelphia A's. Um, but they just can't. This front office is so competitive, and they're always going to try to find any little edge they can, even if it's something that's lower priced. And I think they feel like they've got a window now with these good young position players, particu particularly the mats on the corners and Marcus Simeon and Chris Davis. And um, I think they're, they're going to always try to go for it. The problem is because they do things on a limited budget they're never going to be a complete team they're always going to have some sort of issues somewhere um last year they had a great bullpen and their starting pitching was problematic this year their starting pitching was looked like it should be an issue and has been better than expected but their bullpen has been a disaster mm. so they try to contend and every once in a while they kind of you know like last year somehow they win 97 games despite That's the fact amazing. they went through essentially two full rotations over the course of the season uh and because the bullpen was so good and the position players are so good so i think that that's 
that's going to be what they're going to do. They'll never draft super high because they're always going to be somewhere in the yeah. middle to upper half. And uh, they're just going to – it's an interesting approach. But they, they like to go for it, and I think they're going for it. And I think they feel like, you know, they're a couple games out of the second wild card. I think they feel like they can hang around, maybe pick up some more relief help. They could be right in it in September and maybe sneak in again somehow. So that's why – they're not consistent this year. Last year they yeah. were pretty consistent, and they got really hot from about this point of the season on. We have not seen that yet, um, them getting really hot. But they've got a good team. They've got a good lineup, and they feel like they can score runs with anybody. It is fascinating how inconsistent – teams have been um in the national league central that's in part because of the national league central right? right you got five teams not one of whom is giving up and it's the only division that can really say that that you know entering the season they were all adding and trying to beef up and insistent that they could contend whether or not they actually could or would or what they were going to do but none of them were straight up tanking right. which is really the only a division that can say that so that leads to some inconsistency i mean cardinals are zero and six at wrigley the cubs are zero and three here at bush um you know they there are teams that can't beat the pirates there are teams the pirates can't beat i mean it's just it's a weird thing um so i think, I think the reliance on home runs now makes teams a little streakier that's and maybe um the aggressive use of bullpens yeah, makes them absolutely. more vulnerable right um i was always struck by you know and you saw this with the the big three there um, in the in the Moneyball days when they got overlooked, but the Zito, Hudson, Mulder, um, you know the Cardinals when they were cranking out 100 win seasons, they were doing it with a five man rotation where their fourth guy was say Jeff Supon, right, a guy who's going to give a quality start. Now he might have that four ERA, might you know give you six innings, six and two thirds innings, but he was going to give you a quality start a lot of the time. And what that allowed the rotation to do was to survive a series, right? Okay, so you have a three game series. You, First three guys pitch, then you go into the next series. But oh well, no, we got a quality start coming in game four, and so now we see this inconsistency because it's like, all right, the pitching is set up for this series, but the next one's really going to be tough, and so you see these cycles. And I, I think that that's the that's created by the invitation of more aggressive bullpens that just get shredded and then reset and then shredded and then reset and this use of the elastic kind of roster. I mean, right. these are all feeding into each other, right? Right, and the use of the opener, which the A's have yeah. done with, with very Great mixed point. results so far. But that's, you know, if you've got, if your fourth and fifth guy aren't necessarily reliable, I think more and more teams will start using an opener. And and I think that the A's, the A's are trying to figure out how to make it work. They haven't quite, in, you know, Tampa's perfected it as a strong word, but they certainly seem to have a good idea what they're doing with it. The yeah. A's have not found the right combination yet. You know what team that I used it the best? And I haven't seen Tampa except for on TV, um, but Texas. What Texas did was so fascinating because it wasn't an opener per se. I mean, it was an opener, okay. But it wasn't an opener for like that moment. We saw Milwaukee use an opener just to get a lefty against Matt Carpenter, get that at bat over with, and then move on. And I was like, oh, that's kind of a wasted thing. Yeah. Wouldn't you rather have, well, I mean, seriously, leading off the game, when is that going to be the most important right. at bat for the lefty to face the lefty? Right. Wouldn't you rather say that? It just seemed off. Right. Um, and it really threw everything out, uh, out of whack because it wasn't like the Cardinals set up their lineup to face that lefty. They right. knew what was coming. The Rangers, however, the Rangers, and you've probably seen this too, the Rangers, they set up for one time through the order. And their thought process is, I find fascinating, is because they think, well, we're not going to get more than four, five innings from our starter. We don't want him to face the lineup for a third time through. However, we would rather him get the game to the sixth or seventh and then have our lightning bolts in the bullpen come out. Right. So we'll muddle through 
with the guy we have available who can go one time through the order, maybe somebody who's tricky, maybe somebody who's different, but then the lineup is set up for that guy, not the actual starter, um, because that's how teams will do it. And I thought, well, that's 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 next level. That's the next phase of the opener, right. is it's the one-time through guy. What we are learning so far, at least with the A's experience, is if the opener comes in and gives up a couple of runs, that's it. The team is toast at that point. It's sort of a, it's sort of a mental thing. Like the next guy comes in and he's like, well, I'm already down two runs. And it just oh, kind of brings wow. everybody down. Like you really need the opener to be a guy who can come in and pitch a clean inning. Yeah, uh, and that's you know that's been a little hit and miss for them. So that's fascinating. Yeah, it's going to be. I, I'm not sure how much they're going to use it, especially if they bring up Jesus Lizardo here in the in the after the All Star break, which looks like pretty much a, a go. Um, but uh, you know that with uh, Frankie Montas being suspended for 80 games, mm -hmm. who was their best starter, you know there are going to be points in the season where they probably are still going to have to use the opener. So it's, yeah. a, it's a work in progress for them. And then you invite inconsistency and we're back where we began. Exactly. I mean, it's just so fascinating. So um, in Oakland, is, uh, is, is Moneyball a bad word or a compliment? I think it's still a compliment. I think people understand what um, the book meant for the industry, really not just baseball, but mm -hmm. sports and even Absolutely. other industries, you know, the whole idea of trying to, um, you know, find uh, ways to leverage under undervalue assets in the market. And uh, I think people liked the, especially A's fans and people that live in the A's Bay, like, you know, like the fact that there was a little bit of attention brought mm -hmm. to a franchise that is often overshadowed by the Giants for a city that's often overshadowed by San Francisco. I think yeah. people like that. And, you know, just the fact that the A's are associated with something that's known kind of worldwide uh, in a positive way uh, has been a nice thing. If you talk to us in the uh, A's media, sometimes I guess I, the number of stories I've written about a money ball over the years, I can't, I've, I've lost count. Yeah. Um, and everything. What's the new Moneyball every year? That's the that's the we got to figure out what they're doing differently this year. Well, it's like covering fashion, the, right? Like, a little bit. like what's what, the hot new thing? Yeah, the yeah what's the year? new haute couture for the <laughs> yeah, A's? Yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. Which sometimes it's well, it's just what they were doing last year because their bullpen was good. So now they're going after you know whatever, right. whatever it happens to be. So fascinating. I just I wondered about that, like if the because um, and you know one of the things in the National League Central that the other teams talk about is. Um, you know, for many years they would talk about closing the gap on the Cardinals because the perception was that the Cardinals were doing something better, particularly with pitching. Um, they, you know, they were drafting better, scouting better. They were doing something better to sustain year to year the pitching that every team would need because they weren't going out to buy it, you know, and they looked to like the 2011 trade that kind of restocked things or, uh, or 2013 is the best example of it where like a third of the roster was homegrown and every guy coming out of the bullpen, you know, lighting up the radar gun was homegrown. And, right. you know, this perception was like, what, what are they doing better? And over the last few years, the idea is that, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting being the leader because everybody catches up really fast and it's hard to be the leader because you don't have a flashlight. You're the one holding the, the, you know, you're lighting the way for people. So you're the one reaching in the darkness and everybody else is able to catch up really quickly. Um, and now that the perception is from some of the front office here, particularly like Milwaukee and the Cubs, is that if they haven't caught the Cardinals, they've surpassed the Cardinals or they've found ways to do what the Cardinals do, just not with pitching. Um, and, and I find that very interesting because the A's are that the entire industry. I mean, I think you and I probably two years ago could point to teams that were still, you know, paleolithic in the, in the analytics age. Yeah. 
I don't think we can two today. Yeah, yeah, two, two, two stand out. Two, two successful teams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one unsuccessful team that I can think of. Okay, I'm thinking of two that were pretty successful. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, cool. That would be yeah. that'd be a fun <laughs> draft. Okay. Uh, but uh, the uh, but you know the whole industry. I don't think we could think of one now. The whole industry has has gained ground. I mean, like almost to the point, like what you were talking about, like what's the new money ball? Well, that we have to find the new money ball right. because everybody does money ball now. I mean, there's, there is not, there's the new frontier is, is medicine. Uh, the new frontier is prehab. prehab. Um, it's not yeah. statistics. Um, yeah. um, and I wondered where the A's kind of feel now that they were, you know, I mean the leader, I mean, they, 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 they made it popular and then they made it successful and now they made it a given every team has to have this yeah. and well, how they feel about that yeah um both billy, uh, michael lewis who obviously wrote the book money money ball um billy bean and david forst have all told me sort of se on separate occasions they feel like you know maybe maybe the book accelerated s sort of what their opponents were doing mm -hmm. maybe by a couple of years but there were teams that were already starting to do it including boston Yes. Who, you yeah. know, famously kind of at the end of Moneyball, the movie, that, that, that's like, well, the A's didn't wind up winning anything, but the Red Sox took the system and won the World Series right. the next year. So, um, you know, teams were on it. You know, yeah. the Red Sox were trying to hire Billy Bean and, and actually did, and then he changed his mind. And so it was it was starting to be a thing. Some of his um, assistant GMs were going out and getting GM jobs. Yeah. So um, it might have accelerated a little bit. But the Cardinals um, went out and hired Jeff Luno as yeah. a response to what they saw going on with Oakland. And they saw like, hey, look, this is what we need to do. Um, now the A's have to deal with Lou now, a, yep. a product of Moneyball yeah. as a rival who has done quite well in building Houston's. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you could see how um, and, and a guy who has helped Houston really maybe rise up and start leading in some areas, certainly. Yeah. Um, I, I think I find that fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know how Oakland. I mean, do you, do you find Oakland doing what Oakland's always done and doing it well, or do you find Oakland finding new ways to maybe advance the ball? Well, I think, you know, they are always trying to find uh, whatever they think the sort of more undervalued asset is. They're always going to do that. But I think they feel like some of the next frontiers, a little bit of like what you're talking about in medicine, but also things like psychology. Mm -hmm. I think there are going to be a lot of things um, that are centered around performance, uh, particularly from a mental standpoint. Yeah. Um, and I think that they have some interest in that, as as do some of the other teams. I think that's kind of also seen as the next frontier. I also think just in general, maybe not, not the A's per se right now, but I think there's going to be a little bit of a shift where things start to come back around mm -hmm. and scouts start to be valued more. I think that, um, you know, there is some already some thinking that more eyes on you know particularly amateurs yep. um, and opponents is not necessarily a bad thing and that people are trained and knowledgeable in what you're looking for um, so I think there's going to be a little bit of a shift back to that the teams that are wind up kind of at the bottom year after year are going to start thinking of, of different ways New to ways, do things yeah. and as soon as somebody's successful doing one of those things everybody will go back to that way let me, let me present a theory to you yes. and see if you agree and then I have one big question for you and that, then I'm, I'm done but okay. okay so here's my theory is that as football wanes and people get concerned about football and the you know the life after football and the risk of football um, and maybe college baseball helps out in this regard by expanding scholarships or at least finding a way to improve the access to scholarships through college baseball so that it does become more of a um, you know a, a petri dish for talent for the major leagues because people will go there. 
um, I think we're going to see a shift where more athletes go into baseball. We're already starting to see it because, you know, power and velocity and all that stuff makes baseball fascinating in some ways. I mean, also this changed. is a sore subject in, in Oakland right now, by the way, with after the Kyler Murray thing. No, I know. <laughs> but that's why I bring it up to see if you agree with this is as more athletes kind of filter into baseball, um, teams are going to be looking for non-traditional places to find at baseball players. Yeah. And scouts are going to do that. Like I've talked to scouts and people who are trying to find that next frontier. And I'm like, do you look at failed soccer players? Because could they be good infielders? Do you look at um, cricket players? Cricket players, right? Exactly like Pittsburgh did. Um, you know, John Hamm was in that movie. But yeah, pick cricket bowlers. Um, do you look at um, athletic traits that mesh well with baseball and trust in your scouts to find those guys that you could then develop as athletes? And I, I wonder if that's where we're headed with with more athletes gravitating out of football and toward baseball because of the chance to, if scholarships come through or the chance to make money, um, you know, out of the first round, we see some guys making choices. I know not your guys, <laughs> your guy, but we do see some players making that choice of, well, go to Alabama or go to, well, not maybe Alabama, go to, you know, division one program, not Alabama <laughs> and, um, or go to, you know, major league baseball and yeah. get that early bonus. Um, and I, I think, you know, when it's, when athleticism is, the quotient team seek um, the Cardinals do that a lot with pitching is like they'll go see a shortstop or they'll go see an outfielder and they'll go well he may not stay at those positions but that arm strength and that athleticism we can teach him to pitch right we can see what happens right. um, and there are like little you know they pollinated um, they've pollinated other teams with former position players that are pitchers um, and so I, that's what I wonder it, because yeah. that, that does put an emphasis on scouting. Yeah. The A's have definitely, um, been emphasizing athleticism in the draft, obviously, you know, taking Kyler Murray last year. Yeah. Um, and I, that they have suggested the same thing that athleticism is kind of the, the wave of the future, but, um, that's yeah. scouts. Yeah. That's take that scouting. Is, that is definitely scouts. And I, I, uh, I love the idea of looking at players from maybe some non-traditional sports and, yeah. Um, you know, maybe we, converting. I love it. We I had a whole it. list. Let's get on it. We had a whole <laughs> list in spring. I was like, well, soccer players, could they, you know, fast twitch, quick movement. Those could be infielders, right? Or no. And the, and the, the pushback that I got was, uh, yeah, but hitting a baseball is yeah. really hard and way yeah. different than anything. I'm like, that's true. Okay. So my big question. Yes. All right. So warriors are huge. I mean, yes. they are, they are one of the biggest, most popular and best and trend setting teams of our lifetime. And I don't say that lightly um, with how they've changed the NBA and how they've introduced, you know, one of the greatest players in, yeah, I mean, in NBA history and a lot of things that Steph Curry does. They've also called Oakland home until now. Does that clear the way for the A's to be the biggest show in town? And how do they take advantage of that? How, how do they, can they take advantage of it? And does it lead to a new stadium for them? They're trying to. I think they certainly don't mind being the last team left in Oakland. Uh, the, the Raiders have a, obviously one more year. With, right. um, but uh, and then off to Vegas. And then off to Vegas. 
Uh, yeah, I, I think they're hoping that that certainly right now the city council has been by and large friendly to them. Um, they they are proposing a privately funded stadium, so no uh, public funds. That makes things easier. Um, the mayor is very much in favor of the waterfront ballpark, which is where the A's are focused mm -hmm. on. Um, it's beautiful. The, the only problems with that is there are a lot of obstacles for that site that they're looking at. Um, there's cleanup. There is no transportation there. There's limited parking. There's uh, there are live train tracks that um, have to be yeah, crossed. There's a lot of industrial around there. There's a um, steel plant that mm -hmm. operates essentially next door and, and operates at night. Um, there are um, cargo vessels using the waterway right there and the, the marine industry as opposed to the ballpark for various reasons. Um, so th there are a lot of hoops to jump through. I think the A's feel like they can do it, uh, but it's going to be tough. But what they're doing is something interesting. They are also negotiating to buy the land that the current Coliseum is on, all of it, mm -hmm. uh, and Oracle Arena. Uh, and they would develop that um, awesome. with housing, retail, et cetera. And it's right next to a BART stop, the, the subway, yeah. uh, which is fantastic. Um, and you have to think, and th then they would use that to fund the stadium. You've got to think that if there are enough obstacles or if something happens where it's just not going to work, you can then put a beautiful baseball-only stadium there. And oh, that, I don't know wow. if you went to the old stadium before it was ruined when the Raiders came back, yeah, but it was yeah. lovely. It was a multi-purpose stadium, but it had a view of the hills and the BART train going by. And uh, it was actually, a, a for a multi-purpose stadium, it was actually really nice. The, the Raiders just absolutely ruined it. So if you either refurbish that, which I think is less likely than putting up something lovely and new, uh, and still develop housing and retail around it. I think that could be fantastic. Either way, I mm -hmm. think would be great. But yes, I think the, the A's feel like they're going to have a lot of civic goodwill uh, when it comes to things like infrastructure payments, which you know the city would have to provide some of that and, and um, getting things, uh, proposals through and things like mm -hmm. that that would have to. I think they feel like being the only team left, like what city council person is going to vote against the only team that's left in town. Right. And they can, they can say, Hey, we're Oakland. We're staying here. This is part of our idea. That's what I'm wondering. Right. Like if they can capitalize on, Hey, look, let's be the team that personifies the town that other teams are leaving. Well, that's their, their um, slogan right now. Um, and their hashtag is hashtag rooted in Oakland. Oh, great. So, that's yeah. cool. Yeah. So that's, okay. uh, yeah, they're, awesome. they're, they're trying to make use of it. And, I hope so. Uh, yeah. I love the atmosphere there. I yeah. love, I mean, I, I don't know, it's not like packed house and everything like that, but I love yeah. the atmosphere. The atmosphere is great in Oracle, too, so it's going to be interesting to I see have how been that there. changes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when they move across the bay to the new Chase Center, which is going to be have all the bells and whistles, um, but it's going to price out some of the long-time May, Yeah, may, maybe be a little less raucous. A little more corporate. A little bit more Wimbledon, yeah. a little less. Absolutely. Um, what would be the other example? Oakland. Right, Oakland, exactly. A little more Wimbledon, a little, a little less Oakland. A little less black yeah. hole. All right, I'm going to do Colombo. I have one. Do you you cover the hockey's? Do you ever get a day off? You cover the A's oh, beat yeah. and hockey and I, I I am lucky enough to work for a paper that has uh, still has a decent sized staff and it has the best one of the best national baseball writers in the country and oh, John, John Shea. Shea. So John John very nicely covers for me a lot and we also have a lot of we have not I believe nine BBWAA members on our wow. staff. Wow. All our columnists have covered baseball pretty much at some level. Ron Krejcik, who's our uh, features writer, covered the A's. That's um, awesome. Yeah, we've got a we've got a bunch of people that have uh, Matt Carohara, our Raiders writer, used to cover baseball. So uh, we've got a lot of people we can like. Pretty much everybody can go out and give me a, give me a spell on the. But not as well. Uh, they can't do it. As uh, well, well I, I don't know. I would argue when John Shea does it. A lot of times, I'm very I, like the next day. I look at the paper. I'm like, oh, that is so much better than what I would have done. That nah, makes that's me mad. like me with Hummel. Yeah. yeah. Darn them. Yeah. Darn them and their greatness. The Hall of Famers. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, it has just been an absolute pleasure chit-chatting yeah, with you on you. our joint podcast. I think we'll yeah. have to make this like maybe a semi-annual thing. We can do it again. I got two games out there. Oh, fantastic. If you're, it's, yeah. it's a Unless date. it's Sean Shea. <laughs> well, you know. that, would be, that would be an interesting one. I would actually listen to that also. Yeah, I, I'll do that. But yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm going out to Oakland. I'm very excited. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. Two games weekend series, Friday off day, which is odd. Oh, but yeah, it'll be good. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. You can find Derek Gould's work on St. Louis Today, that's stltoday.com, and he's on Twitter, at dgould, D-G-O-O-L-D. Thanks again to Derek for joining us. Our producers today have been King Kaufman and Libby Coleman. We will be back next week with more A's Plus. Thanks for listening. A's Plus is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is the editor-in-chief. If you like this show, please subscribe, tell a friend, or give us a review. Follow me on Twitter at Susan Slusser, or you can email me at sslusser at sfchronicle.com. Support A's Plus and a lot of great journalism with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe. Subscribe.